Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Zatarans, maker of New Orleans pantry staples like Creole mustard, fish fry, and jambalaya mix since 1889. Recipes and more at Zatarans.com. Studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. This is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The humble little honeybee is actually one of the most important players in our ecosystem. On this week's show, we're circling the globe in pursuit of a honey of a tail. We begin right here in our own backyard at the Audubon Zoo. While you may go to the zoo to visit more exotic creatures, the honeybees are there in their own secluded hives. We'll visit them and then take off down under to learn all about the magical properties of Manuka honey, a honey unique to New Zealand. We'll have an apian chat with Chicago superstar chef Rick Bayless, whose passion for bees is simply boundless, and finally, We'll return home to discover the story of the hidden hives of Mid-City. We're all abuzz on this week's Louisiana Eats. At New Orleans Audubon Zoo, you can expect to find the kinds of animals that have enchanted zoo-goers for generations. Tigers, elephants, giraffes, but the zoo is also home to tens of thousands of tiny creatures that, although they may not draw the same kind of crowd, play a vital role in our food system. I'm talking, of course, about those prolific pollinators, bees. Curators and animal keepers have managed bee colonies at the Audubon Zoo since 2016, maintaining two hives tucked away behind the Alligator Lagoon. Since then, the zoo has set up a more public space, a garden that provides host plants and foraging opportunities for our native bees and butterflies. Our pollinator garden is located in between our orangutan exhibit and our elephant exhibit. So we're up against some competition, but it's this perfect little bright spot where people come over and get to learn about pollinators and why they're important. Curator Dominique Fletus, or Dom, as she likes to be called, met me at the zoo's colorful pollinator garden on a sunny afternoon. Along with her work in the Louisiana swamp and jaguar jungle, she helps run the garden and on-grounds apiary program. Before taking me to see the zoo's colonies, Dom wanted to introduce me to some native bees bumbling among the garden's satsuma trees and stochesia asters. So our pollinator garden, we actually got through a grant for Bayer Save the Bee. And so what a pollinator garden is, is a garden that has plants that are specifically producing extra pollens and nectars and things that our pollinating friends like bugs and bees and butterflies and hummingbirds love to eat and they need that to survive. And in doing so, they're transferring that pollen from one plant to another to help it fruit. So a lot of our favorite things that we like to eat, like satsumas, are pollinated by bees and things like that. We like to choose plants that have a, a, a big pollen source. Um, there's different pollinator plants that have 
a variety of different attributes. So some being, well, this one might be high in pollen versus nectar. And particularly with bees, they need both to be able to make the hive function and be able to make the honey that we love to eat. People can come have a look at this and then be inspired to create their own pollinator garden in a very tiny little garden space. Exactly. And so one of the, the beautiful things about pollinator gardens is it doesn't have to be huge. Anyone could put even just a small pot in front of their house with the right plants and it's going to make a difference. You're going to have a couple bees or butterflies visit it and that's all that they need to do. Now, Dom, tell me about your native bee here in the garden, because you made me laugh coming over here that there's a native bee that hangs out. Which one is he? And how can you tell? So everyone is used to the European honeybee. That is the honeybee that beekeepers have that produces the vast majority of honey that we eat. But there's so many different species of native bees that I mean, I don't even know if we'd be able to count how many. And here in Louisiana, we have quite a few, and I've seen a couple in the pollinator garden. And the one that we're looking at right now on the Indian blanket flower is an all-black bee. And you can see he's got these big yellow pollen baskets from all of the pollen that he's collected from these plants. But I don't for the life me know what species he is because every time I try and take a picture of him, he flies away. Well, it's the most fascinating thing because if I saw that bee, if you hadn't told me, I would have thought maybe he was just a big black fly. No, we have a, a wide variety of native bees, some being black, some being black and yellow, similar to a honeybee or brighter yellow, and some like our sweat bees are bright green. Totally different from uh, the bees that you would normally see, but they all have that purpose in pollinating. It's just honeybees do it in such a way that produces so much honey that it kind of is a good human uh, honeybee interaction. So if someone wanted to start their own garden, are there any particular plants that you would suggest for this climate? Yeah, so always sticking with your natives is a great thing because you know the natives are going to grow here. And there's a lot of places that you can get them where you know that they haven't used pesticides, which is very important because that's one of the things hurting our bees. City Park does a, a garden sale over at the Pelican Greenhouse. The Herb Society locally does a, a garden sale. But a lot of times things like our native salvias, you could do a small citrus tree like a satsuma, Things that will last a long time, but also keeping in mind that you're going to need to plant things throughout the year. So you don't want something that's just going to be blooming during the springtime because that doesn't give the bees anything to eat in the fall. So either something that's blooming for a while or that you can change out throughout the year. Next, Dom and I walked over to a little island in the Louisiana Swamp Exhibit where the zoo's two hives are located. Before we could get close to the colonies, we had to suit up in gear designed to protect us against stings. First, a long, heavy white cotton jumpsuit. Then, a pith helmet and veil made of a breathable mesh material that covered our faces and necks. Finally, heavy leather gloves that crawled up past our elbows. It was 93 degrees that afternoon, and let me tell you, that suit was hot. But as we got closer to the hives containing tens of thousands of bees, I was happy to have some protection. Okay, Dom, we're all suited up. Here we are. You are the cutest beekeeper <laughs> I've seen in a long time. Now, what are you doing there? So I'm lighting our smoker. Oh, there we go. That's what we want to see. A nice, thick, cool smoke. That looks like a um, watering can with an accordion on one side. <laughs> That's a really good description of it. So a smoker is a beekeeper's best friend. 
It's one of the few tools you always want to have on you when you're going to enter a hive. And what it is, is we just have some pine straw in there with a little bit of paper pulp to start a nice cool smoke. And when we open up the hive, we're going to smoke the bees. So we're just going to pump that a couple times to release some of the smoke into the hive. And what that does is it distracts the bees from you entering in there. So it's, it's not harming them at all. It's not hot, but it gives them something to focus on that isn't you. Because if someone was to enter your home and start messing around, you'd be upset. But if they came in and maybe gave you some cake, you might be distracted. Um, so this is just something to turn their attention away, kind of blocks their pheromones a little bit from sending out a warning signal, but it's not in any way hurting them. Right, so we'll get it nice and thick. Nice and thick. Oh my. So we're gonna open up the hive. This is what we call hive A. It's our hive closer to the White Gator building and it's our more productive hive. So you can tell it's got an extra box on it because they were already filling up one of their small supers with honey. A super is a box used to store surplus honey. As Dom opened up hive A, she blew smoke over the top of the frames to distract the bees as she checked on their progress. Each frame is designed to hold honeycomb, the cells of wax bees make to store their honey or eggs. So first we're gonna check one of these frames and this is a honey super. So the only thing we should be seeing in here is capped honey if they've finished filling it all up, which is what we've got. And you can see when you hold up to the light, kind of the areas where there might be some darker spots where they probably have brought in some darker pollen because every flower has a different color pollen. There's a whole little area on this frame where they've got some dark areas. So this entire box is filled up and looks like this with the capped honey. So it is ready for us to extract it. How long did it take for them to build this up? So it all depends on your bees and the time of year and what is blooming. Um, because this is a hot season and we've got a lot blooming, I think they've had this box now just for a couple weeks and these bees are, are fairly productive. But usually within a couple weeks, we'll get a box full, but at some times of the year, and especially if you have a really productive hive, you could have something filled up within a week. The honeybees that we generally think of when we think of you know, what we're getting our honey from are European honeybees. So they're not native to America, but it has become a staple in the you know, agricultural industry to maintain the amount of crops that we grow here. Uh, and across the world, like, European honeybees have kind of taken over as far as like the main bee for pollinating. And within that, there are different breeds of European honeybee. So a lot of time you'll get Italians or Russians. Um, and even the Africanized bee is just a different breed of honeybee. It's not like a disease that has become on that bee. Uh, and each of those breeds has specific traits. So some beekeepers might specifically want to work with one because it is more resistant to parasites or infections. Some are harder workers, some are a little more aggressive. So they all have these uh, big varieties just amongst the different breeds that they have. Dom, these bees, some of them of course are busy as bees and these they're moving bees. about the frame. Some of them are totally still. Are, are they resting? What, what exactly is the behavior? So we have some bees over here, you can see eating out of the, the open comb. So they're eating some of the honey or they're depositing depending on what stage they're at. I can see some of these still have pollen in it. So they might be depositing their pollen into those combs to be able to produce honey while some are eating or cleaning it out. 
but every bee has its purpose. So you have your bees that are coming back with pollen, you know, on their little pantaloons to be able to place in there. And then some are just making sure that there's food to be able to feed some of the baby bees, which let's see if we can find a frame where we can find some baby bees. Yeah, the propolis is very sticky and holds everything together. Also known as bee glue, the propolis is a sap or resinous mixture that bees collect from trees or plants to strengthen the comb and to seal cracks. Breaking through it, we now had the opportunity to see the colony's caste system in action, made up of the queen, workers, and drones. So what we I just did was broke through the propolis that's holding everything together. It's this resin-like material that the bees make and it also has kind of an antimicrobial property and is used a lot in uh, holistic medicine because you can make teas out of it. Oh my goodness, that hive is full. They're very engaging. Aren't they? Yeah, they are. So the queen is somewhere in these two boxes. Queens can be difficult to find, um, but she is working hard and she is laying eggs. So somewhere in the bottom two boxes is usually where you will find her. Most colonies have at least two brood boxes like that for her to lay eggs. But she is a much larger bee than our regular worker bee, so she's a little bit easier to spot. If you can find her taking a, a quick break. Searching among the thousands of worker bees, we had no luck locating the queen. This isn't uncommon. In fact, Beekeepers will often mark the queen with a dot of paint on her thorax for easy identification. Oh, you look here. This is a drone bee. So that's ah, a male bee. He's bigger, he's darker. He's got big eyes. So most of the bees that you're going to see whenever you're out and about and see them landing on flower, those are going to be your female bees. Those are your worker bees. The drone bees' main purpose in life is to mate, to help keep the population going but other than that they don't play too much of a role in the in the beehive what's the life expectancy of bees so it changes depending on what type of bee it is so a queen a queen can live i think it's up to seven or so years i mean she would be able to run a hive for that long and as she got older if she started not managing her her workers well enough her workers might overtake her uh, to get a new queen in the system that's a little younger but a worker bee only lives for about 23 days and so they they go through the cycle of you know as when they're first born they start with these tasks and then they kind of move up the rank of what they do until they're out bringing in pollen and then helping to keep the hive going by making the sacrifice they're also pretty with their fuzzy little bodies and their shiny, shiny wings. They're just beautiful insects. They are. Now they're amazing, especially when you get a chance to look up close at them, just to really take in how gorgeous they are. And you can see a couple of them here just kind of t sticking their little tongues in, trying to get a little bit of honey that uh, that has spilled. And I get, I get taken away just looking at them because they're just amazing little creatures and as much work as they can get done. And it's, I mean, amazing to think Everyone in this hive has a role and they, they play that role so well and, you know, they work together to make everything that they do happen. And, you know, if we could do that a little more in our lives. <laughs> Isn't that the truth?
Dom, thank you so much for uh, taking me into this unknown part of the swamp exhibit where the bees live. Thank you. No problem. Thank you so much for coming to visit me and the girls. That was Audubon Zoo curator and beekeeper Dominique Fletus. You see, buzz, buzz, buzz goes the honeybee, but tweedly, tweedly, dwee goes the bird. But the sound of your little voice, darling, that's the sweetest sound I've ever heard. I say, buzz, buzz, buzz goes the honeybee. Coming up next, we learn about a honey known for its antibacterial properties made by bees from down under. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Here we are. Buzz, buzz, buzz. That's what the honeybee does. Dilly, dilly, dee. You know, the bird does that, roughly. Buzz, buzz, buzz. Goes the honeybee and... Dilly, dilly, dee. Goes the bird and... Buzz, buzz, buzz. Goes the honeybee. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand. Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. And from the Napoleon House, located in the historic French Quarter. Dishing up 200 years of history, refreshing Pimm's Cup cocktails, and toasty warm mufaladas all-day dining and private events at 500 Charter Street. Both mighty and soothing, honey has long been used for remedial purposes, treating everything from GI tracts to sore throats. While there are hundreds of unique types of honey out there, one has been creating a lot of buzz lately in the world of medicine. Made by bees pollinating a special flower native to New Zealand, Manuka honey is known for its powerful level of antibacterial properties. And with celebrities like Kourtney Kardashian and Gwyneth Paltrow hyping it up, a jar of Manuka honey can cost anywhere from $20 to $120. To get a better understanding of this story, we spoke by phone with David Knoll. He's the founder of Pacific Resources International, which imports and sells Manuka honey products. I asked him to bring us up to speed on the topic. Yeah, I can give you um, a kind of encapsulated form. It, it, it's kind of a broad subject uh, these days, but typically speaking, uh, Manuka honey was a commercial invalid honey for many, many years uh, because it was a darker honey. It uh, wasn't as sweet as most. And uh, most people uh, just didn't like the looks or the flavor of it because when you compared it to something like Tupelo that comes out of Florida or the clover honeys out of Canada, it just didn't have that lighter appearance and the sweeter flavor. And so they used to call it baker's honey and give it away for virtually free in the early days. But we've been importing New Zealand honeys just in general for over 30 years and the Manuka honey for about 22 years. But uh, a doctor that did digestive disorders out of the White Cattle University in New Zealand 
was looking for natural remedies to help with digestive disorders. And he found that most raw honeys helped with different bacteria and viruses and stuff that could be found in our intestines and our uh, colon and stomach. And uh, at, at room temperature with the lab, he found that all these honeys worked very, very well. Uh, the problem was when he gave these other raw honeys to uh, his patients, nobody got better. Uh, in fact, in some cases, they got worse. Oh. <laughs> but um, he then went on a search for a honey that uh, wasn't uh, affected by your body temperature. What he found was that at room temperature, all these raw honeys worked with no problem. But as soon as you ingest the honey, your body temperature runs at about 98.6 degrees. And that will affect the activity of the honey. And so he went in search of what they call a heat-tolerant honey. And manuka is just one of them. Uh, the Waikato University is in New Zealand. And, of course, the manuka plant was right in his backyard. <laughs> Tell us about the manuka plant, because I, I'm sure most of my listeners couldn't visualize that and don't have a clue what it is. Yeah, most of us would probably just drive right past a manuka plant. It, it has no real great outstanding features. It looks like a scrub bush, uh, if you like. It's known as the healing tree in New Zealand so, because after a, uh, a mudslide or a fire, something where the, uh, the, the vegetation has been devastated, it's the first one to populate the hillsides or the valleys. Uh, and it's very aggressive and it's very sturdy. It loves high winds. It loves salt spray. Um, you know, it, it likes abuse. And so it's the first one to come back in and allow smaller, more delicate trees and plants to grow up under its canopy. Uh, and it usually um, will grow anywhere from about mm, two feet to maybe 15 feet. But they're, they're mostly considered originally in New Zealand as a nuisance. They used to clear for making dairy farms or orchards or whatever to get rid of this scrub stuff because it was it virtually had very little value. And, of course, it's not the tree making the honey, it's the bees. That's correct. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bees collect pollen, and they collect the nectar from these. Uh, and, and funny enough, because uh, the nectar is not as sweet, bees don't particularly prefer the manuka pollen, and so it's... Uh, only advantage is, is that the manuka bush flowers once a year, generally speaking, and it flowers at a time when most other flowers aren't out. So the bees are kind of forced uh, to take the nectar from the manuka. But uh, just like us, uh, the bees prefer sweeter things. And if there's something sweeter around, they'll go for that and not, not go to the manuka. <laughs> so how do these beekeepers know that these are bees with manuka honey? You never know for sure because you cannot control the bees. They can sometimes have a 50-mile radius uh, around their hive. I uh, didn't think that they were corralled very easily, no. so I was very curious about all this. Yeah, well, what they do is um, because the manuka is so prolific and it does cover vast areas, they try to take it right into the middle of the, uh, the manuka forest and uh, allow it. And again, the advantage is, is that it usually is flowering at a time when most other things haven't flowered yet. And so the bees have very little choice as to what they, they want to get it from. In some cases, with the, the increasing prices, some of the beekeepers have found it advantageous to find remote uh, uh, places. And actually, they'll cut a hole in the bush and they'll drop the hives in by helicopter. 
and there's no other way to get to them except by helicopter. Uh, and so you have these uh, acres and acres of manuka that grows wild along the coasts of New Zealand and inland as well. And they'll just cut a hole right in the middle and uh, drop the hives in and just harvest the honey as the season progresses. Honey, one of the ways that you test its effectiveness is its peroxide activity. Would you explain about the peroxide activity and non-peroxide activity in Manuka honey? Certainly. the um, All raw honeys, again, have a, a peroxide-like activity, and that's why honey has been used since as long as we can find records of man recording stuff back to the Egyptians and the Phoenicians. Uh, honey's been used uh, in cosmetics with Cleopatra, uh, has been used uh, as a medicine for all kinds of conditions, either internally or externally. If you got stabbed by a sword or a spear in the early days, uh, the only thing they really had was to pack the wound with honey. You know, if you lived, you lived. If you didn't, you didn't. But uh, honey has a natural antiseptic property that's similar to hydrogen peroxide. It pushes water away from the wound so the bacteria cannot exist, and then it, it keeps the wound clean so that it can heal. Manuka honey is unique in the fact that it has non-peroxide activity that has the same kill factors as peroxide. And this was a unique finding, and it's really what propelled Manuka to the top of the honey list for healing. Not only does it have maybe 100 times more active components in it than an average raw honey for either diabetic ulcers on the skin or digestive problems like diverticulitis, colitis, irritable bowel syndrome, stomach ulcers, those kind of things, but it also has the ability to build your immune system at the same time uh, with these outstanding properties. Manuka honey is now known as a prebiotic, something that goes in and conditions the stomach so that your friendly bacteria, your probiotics, can proliferate and help you with absorption and digestion uh, and all those kind of things. If you don't have probiotics in your system, if your digestive tract is not running like a high-tuned performance car, you're going to develop some kind of diseases later on in life, uh, like old-age diseases like arthritis, diabetes, those kind of things come upon us quickly when our digestive tract is not in tune. And that's what Dr. Peter Mullen found uh, in New Zealand. He was a digestive specialist, and he was the one that first found the Manuka uh, qualities. And that's the key to uh, the success of Manuka and why it's so popular. And uh, it astounds me even today that we sell a jar, one-pound jar of Manuka honey from $20 all the way up to $120. But it's just that it works, number one, and number two, that there's a short demand of it, and that's why the price keeps going up. <laughs> well, I'm a king bee buzzing around your hive. That was David Knoll of Pacific Resources International talking to us about New Zealand's Manuka honey. Well, I can make honey, baby. Let me come inside. Well, buzz a while. I'm Rick Bayless, and I am the chef and owner of Frontera Grill, Topolo Bampo, Shoko, and Lena Brava in Chicago, and host of Public Television's Mexico, One Plate at a Time. With his high level of energy and insatiable curiosity, 
Author and educator Rick Bayless is one of America's most lauded celebrity chefs. Throughout his career, he's been a powerful advocate for regional farmers and the environment. As a decline in bee colonies threatens our food system's survival, Rick has focused some of his attention on more apian endeavors. He's helped raise money for the whole Kids Foundation's Give Bees a Chance campaign, which aims to award 50 schools with honeybee hive grants. And if you eat at one of his restaurants, you could be eating honey made by bees from hives at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport, or maybe even Rick's own backyard. Rick, it is always a thrill to have a chance to sit down and visit with you. So uh, Likewise. I, I love conversations with you because they're very animated and we get into really good topics. I know that one of the nonprofit efforts that you have been devoting some time and attention to lately has to do with our friends, the pollinators. Oh, yeah. Well, we have done a couple of fundraisers um, for the Whole Kids Project, um, and what their focus is is to put beehives in schools. And I know that for a lot of people, they go, oh, that sounds like a disaster waiting to happen because, um, you know, everybody is afraid of bees. Most people are afraid of bees, but bees are nothing to be afraid of. And actually, we really rely on those pollinators, the bees, to help us get a whole lot of the crops that we are enjoying all the time. Um, I think pretty much everybody has heard that there's a lot of hive collapse going on. Chicago is not the easiest beekeeping climate. Um, bees can survive our winters just fine. They do the craziest thing. They all, the bees that are in the hive, will go to where the queen is and they will flap their wings really strongly creating heat and they will keep that queen alive for the entire winter, even at temperatures below zero in Chicago. Um, what we have had a lot of troubles with lately, oddly enough, is that we have been having a very irregular climate stuff, like 60 and 70 degrees in January when we would think it was never even going to break 20, and then getting really cold later in the spring, like below freezing. And the, the bees don't know what to do with that. And that's caused a massive amount of hive collapse in Chicago because they move. And when they get into those warmer temperatures, they start going out looking for pollen that they can bring back to the hive. And then if it gets really cold again, they don't know what to do with it. And they've already gone into a different mode. So they don't protect the queen. The queen dies. And then there's a hive collapse. About seven years ago, I started doing some beekeeping. And um, I will tell you that that is one of the most fascinating things in the world. Where do you keep your hives? Uh, in my backyard. Oh, my yeah, your backyard. Yeah. What a fabulous place. Yeah, I, it is a nice place. It includes a production garden for our restaurants. I wanted to do as much of a, uh, a complete ecosystem as I could there. And uh, you really do, if you're sort of looking at biodynamics, they insist that you create an ecosystem that has some kind of um, livestock in it. <laughs> so my livestock is my bees because they are literally considered considered livestock for the kind of thing that that I'm talking about. I also have chickens. Um, and uh, so between the chickens and the and the bees, I've got my livestock in my garden. 
How did you learn the craft of beekeeping? Uh, from a beekeeper. Um, and you can go to classes. There's tons of books that you can read, but it really is one of those crafts that you kind of have to learn directly from someone who knows the ins and outs of it. So we have always had a bee consultant that stops by every once in a while and takes a look at the bees and coaches us through things. The one thing that I was really surprised about with bees is how gentle they are. So you, when you're gonna go into the hive to check it, the one thing that you, you start with is the smoking process. The idea being, and I guess this is, they found that this is really true because it always works, is that when the bees smell smoke, they all return to the hive and they're gonna wanna protect the queen because they think there's a fire someplace. So it really, they get really super calm. And then you start going down into the hive and, and pulling up uh, some of the frames and looking at them and making sure that the queen is laying appropriately and they're, they're getting all of their honey in there and they're capping the cells and you're checking it for mites and different things that could possibly go wrong. But the really fascinating thing is how calm those bees are and how um, those of us that have been doing it for some time, I wear one of those hats, those um, rimmed hats that has a net that comes down around, basically down to my throat area and in the back. And that's really all I do. And then I just go right in there and the bees are just so incredibly gentle that if they don't think that you're going to hurt them, they, they have no reason to attack you. And I think everybody thinks of bees as really mean critters and that they're gonna attack anybody that they see and sting them. Well, first of all, Bees don't sting, I mean, just willy-nilly. They will only do it as a last resort because they die after they sting you. <laughs> so you have to kind of keep that in mind. But mostly we just kind of go in there and sometimes they'll crawl around on your hands. But once you get into a sort of symbiotic relationship <laughs> with your bees, and it really does sort of feel that way when you're going in there, um, it's just really cool. I'd love to know what you do with your honey. Oh. So you've got the production, right. you've got all the restaurants and places to use the honey. Where and does your honey end up? Uh, it, it ends up um, in specialty preparations. Certainly we used a lot of it when we did the fundraisers for the Whole Kids Foundation. And then we use it usually in desserts because people will pay more attention to it in a dessert than they will in a savory preparation where it might not be quite so obvious its flavor and so we have two hives and um, most of the time we get depends on what kind of a year it is but most of the time we'll get um, someplace between two and three gallons of honey out of those hives. It's, uh, if we were not in the city and, and our hives are right downtown Chicago, basically, um, if we were out in a forest preserve or something like that, we could get twice or three times that much honey. Honeys have different flavor profiles. So what's the flavor profile of the honey that comes from your backyard? Uh, most people would assume that if it was a downtown honey, that it would probably taste like car exhaust or something <laughs> like that. But it actually is a very light flower honey. 
And the one crazy thing about um, bees is that they can travel for miles away from the hive to collect their pollen. So they're not necessarily collecting just around in our yard. The really young bees usually stay fairly close to the hive, but then they start moving way farther away. And so we have a lot, uh, Chicago's known for its park systems. So there's a lot of places that the bees in our hives can go to collect pollen besides our yard, which has a lot of a, a lot of things blooming in it. And when you consume your own honey, yeah. what's your favorite way to have it? How do you eat your honey? Well, you, you know, I will say that there's this one thing that I really love to do. I cook a Sunday brunch and Monday dinner at my house every week. And we usually have people over for one, at least one of those occasions. And because the rest of the time I'm working and so I'm, I'm eating in our restaurants. But um, on Monday night, I love to make fresh ricotta. So we have this amazing um, egg, all grass-fed, uh, low-temp, pasteurized, non-homogenized milk that we get from a couple of hours west of Chicago from Kelowna, Iowa. And if you make a fresh cheese out of that, it's just simple. Acid set, you bring it up at 190 degrees, you add some acid. I usually use lime juice or lemon juice. You let it at curdle, you take that, you scoop the curds out, put it into a cheesecloth, give a gentle press to it, and it's ready to serve. So usually I do that right before dinner, and then um, I put it in the refrigerator to, to firm up a little bit and to cool down completely, and then drizzle it with honey. And right now we are in the middle of black raspberry season in Chicago, so I mix black raspberries and red raspberries together and put that over this cheese and I and that honey and I'll swear it's got to be one of the very best desserts that you could possibly ever eat. Rick Bayless, chef and owner of Chicago's Frontera restaurants. Is honey a healthier alternative to sugar? Stay tuned. And we'll explore that topic when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission. Located 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter, the North Shore's Tammany Taste features the chefs and farmers, brewers and bakers of St. Tammany Parish's culinary scene. Visit louisiananorthshore.com to discover more. Louisiana's North Shore, where New Orleans has come to play and get away for more than a century. Additional support for Louisiana Eats comes from Cuba Travel New Orleans, a local travel agency now offering an authentic trip to the acclaimed Havana Jazz Festival in 2020, designed to support the Cuban people through music and arts. Visit cubaneworleans.com or call 504 252-9774 to book your trip today. 
week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Is honey a healthier alternative to sugar? Sugar ranks higher on the glycemic index than honey, which means it raises blood sugar levels more quickly. This is because of its higher fructose content and the absence of trace minerals. But honey has slightly more calories than sugar, so because it's sweeter, you may be able to use less. Both honey and sugar are carbohydrates, consisting of both fructose and glucose. Sugar's proportions are 50-50, while honey contains only 40% fructose and 30% glucose. So what's in the rest of honey? Water, pollen, and minerals such as magnesium and potassium, all of which contribute to honey's health benefits. Honey also contains amino acids, antioxidants, enzymes, and vitamins. So what are the health benefits? Honey's been used as a safe cough suppressant since ancient times. Consuming local honey may ease your seasonal allergy complaints, and it's also been proven to help heal wounds and improve some types of dermatitis. God bless the bees. And now, back to more Louisiana Eats. Mm, queen bee, queen bee, queen bee. Queen bee, please come back to me. My name is Bridget Bro, and I am a beekeeper as a hobby, very part-time, and sometimes I'm a stinging cushion for the bees. <laughs> My mid-city neighbor, Bridget Bro, is a real live wire and quite a character. She's a real do-it-yourself girl, and I never know what I'll see that she's up to next. But recently, I was quite surprised to find Bridget out on the street in a bee suit. That's how I discovered the hidden hives of Mid-City. Wait till you hear just where Bridget keeps her hives. Well, Bridget, I never thought that there would be beekeeping right in this hustling, bustling corridor near Delgado and City Park. Tell me how your interest in beekeeping began. Well, my father, who is in Picayune right now, when he got up there after Katrina, it's 52 feet or so above sea level, uh, he met a guy that asked him to get into it. So he asked if I was interested, and um, I'm thinking, it's bees, why not? How complicated is that? So yeah, I said yes. He said, okay, here's a list of what we need to do. So we go get the suit. We get the, the hive boxes, the frames, uh, the smokers, and whatever else you need to start your beekeeping. And uh, then my dad says, there's a, uh, a hive that needs to be removed. Do you want to go get it? And I'm like, sure. <laughs> I, I should have read the book. <laughs> we had a friend who does the bee removal, so we went with him. And uh, we brought our, our, our box and stuff, and we, you know, he was using the little vacuum to vacuum the bees into his bucket. As he was cutting the cone, we were putting it in the, 
frames and putting in the box. We finished up there, went back to Picayune, and set everything up like we were instructed to do. And uh, we, we sat out on the veranda in the uh, Mississippi Southern Heat and had a refreshing beverage. And then I opened up the book, Beekeeping for Dummies. <laughs> <laughs> and what did you discover in Beekeeping for Dummies? That as new beekeepers, you should not try to uh, use a hive that you're removing from the wild or catch swarms. <laughs> so what happened to that first uh, stab? Well, they hung around for a while, and, and then they left. I was kind of telling my dad that I think we're more bee killers than keepers because we kept losing them. They kept flying away. I don't understand. So they weren't necessarily dying on you. They were just choosing to move on to a new home. Yes, yeah, they, they were going, but we definitely weren't doing a good job of keeping them. So after that, we were going to some beekeeper meetings, and we found out you can buy, they were calling them nukes, and it's like a half of a hive. There's 10 frames in a hive, so you get like five frames with your queen. So we go get the bees, and we get them in the hive. So we got two separate hives. Everything's set up, and everything looks good. So it seems like that's working, okay? It seems like it's working. And they're like, oh, you need to feed them. And you need to uh, check on them, and you need to make sure the queen's laying eggs, and you need to identify the queen. And I'm, I'm in these meetings with my dad, and we're looking at each other going, what? It's bees. How hard is this? How hard is this? So there's a whole list of things you need to do, and uh, you need to check for mites and beetles and uh, moths and, and all kinds of stuff. And I'm like, had no idea it was this complicated. But we, we're still going with it. We're, we're going with it. We're smoking the bees. We're getting stung. Um, you know, we got everything on, but somehow we managed to uncover just in time for a sting. So, <laughs> yeah, they, they seem to do okay, you know. Um, we'll, we'll see. Well, this is the part that, I, you know, the other day I see you in the neighborhood. You're obviously, you know, in beekeeping garb. You've got beekeeping accessories with you. And I said, Bridget, where's the hive? Where's the hive, Bridget? The hive is on the roof. <laughs> How do you get up on the roof? Well, uh, the second story porch has uh, an access to the roof and the ceiling. So just with a uh, extension ladder, and then I'm on the roof. And it is a flat roof with somewhat of a slope. But the yard is, it's wonderful. But to have a hive down here, I think the bees would maybe be a problem with people on the street, uh, with them coming and going. And I didn't want to put anybody at risk with that because the bees really, like, the only time they get aggressive is when you're messing with their hive. What to you is the most rewarding part of this beekeeping? Why do you keep at this hobby despite the stings, despite the flyaway bees, despite all of the odds? What keeps you doing this, Bridget? Well, um, occasionally harvesting the honey is always a nice bonus, but these little things, I find them real fascinating. 
how they uh, coordinate things, how they just, you know, make the honey, draw the, you know, make the wax, put the honey in there, draw it all out. And it actually is beautiful to see, you know, uh, all the work that they do and just to watch, just to watch them. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting. Sometimes I'll lay in the hammock in the yard here, and especially when the palmetto blooms, I'll lay there and I'll just watch them. And you, if you watch them close enough, you can see, all, you know, the little pollen pockets on their legs and things like that. So, and I, I don't, I don't really understand it, but it's just something super cool to, to watch them do their thing. And when they look at you with those big eyes, how can you resist? <laughs> That was my neighbor, Bridget Bro, keeper of the hidden hives of Mid-City. When a bee lies sleeping in the palm of your hand You're bewitched and deep that's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions and hear all about upcoming special events by visiting poppytooker.com. You can find videos, recipes, and even order cookbooks there. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Zatarans, Camellia Brand Beans, and St. Tammany Tourist Commission. Additional support for Louisiana Eats is provided by Dickie Brennan's Steakhouse, a local New Orleans steakhouse serving prime beef and Louisiana Wagyu in New Orleans French Quarter. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch in the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, and special projects manager, Reggie Morris, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Come visit us anytime in our Louisiana Eats studios at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. We're on Instagram and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>